Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Christmas prom party. You filthy animals. Merry Christmas in July, that is. Hey, do you know the origin of Christmas in July? I don't. If you do, my brain is going to be very excited for this information. I do, actually. <gasps> Tell me. Uh, it's based on the Southern Hemisphere. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because it, since obviously the seasons are swapped on the two hemispheres, mm-hmm. Christmas usually takes place in the middle of summer. So this is just the... Uh, Northern Hemisphere basically trying to capture that energy and because people really like Christmas. Oh. Well, it's an interesting thing that I have now learned. I just thought that it was because it's six months to Christmas and it's the summer. Like how we do summer ween. Yeah, I like summer ween. Carving into watermelon. Yeah. That's great. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, but this is like a ultimate Christmas in July movie because it takes place at Christmas time. But it's also L.A., so it does not look like Christmas as far as I know. (laughs) Yeah, so we wanted to do something fun. And when we realized that around the time this episode goes live, it's going to be pretty close to being July 25th. Like, wouldn't it be fun to do Christmas in July, especially with a movie that is a Christmas movie that a lot of people forget is a Christmas movie because it's set in Los Angeles during the apocalypse and it does not look like Christmas. But you know what? It's a Christmas movie, damn it. Yeah, like Christmas is definitely a factor here, but it's certainly not. This this is what do I call? Okay, so I have a a three-tier scale of Christmas films. Mm -hmm. This is like a second-tier Christmas film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because the first tier are ones where it looks like Christmas, central themes are built around Christmas, like some Miracle on 34th Street kind of thing. Like, that is unmistakably Christmas. Yes. Then you have like second-tier Christmas movies where it's like, well... It's based at Christmas time. It handles certain things like Christmas, but it's not really very Christmassy, like uh, 90% of Die Hard, mm-hmm. where I was like, well, it's a Christmas. It's really a better Christmas in July movie because of explosions and patriotism than right. it is a Christmas movie. And then the third tier is like, I don't know, when anytime ABC Family would be like, it's Christmas, we're marathon Harry Potter movies because there's a Christmas scene in this movie that's not a Christmas movie. Right. That, that's third tier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I tend to agree with that formula for what is and is not a Christmas movie. Thank you. Yeah. Because while the movie we're talking about today, which is Night of the Comet, is not a Christmas movie per se, like this, this movie could take place on any other day of the year and it's still the same movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like Christmas is not really integral to the plot, but 
the fact that it does take place on Christmas adds like this extra level of eeriness to the film that I really like. I, yes. I love juxtaposition. I'm a big sucker for it. And this movie is perfect for that. Yeah. So I guess we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. So Harmony, the question I have for you, as always, what was your knowledge of Night of the Comet before I showed it to you? Uh, you showed me Night of the Comet for the first time, like maybe two years ago. Probably. It's been, it's been a little bit. Um, I, I wouldn't say that this movie is like underground or like a full-blown cult classic because people know about it, but it's not one that like airs on TV or is super well-known unless you are into genre films. Yeah. Night of the Comet, I think, is kind of the sister film of Night of the Demons, which are, they're, they're both really cool teen horror movies that have great costume designs, but a lot of people probably recognize maybe the box cover art or mm-hmm. s- certainly... Look at the costume design. Maybe yeah, you've seen stills of it. Exactly. Like for this one, the one I had always seen is when she has the Uzi. Yeah, when Sam's got the Uzi and Reg is covering her ears. Like, that's the picture most people have seen. Um, but this is a movie that you're totally right, unless you're a genre person more than likely this is one that's not going to get like thrown on your radar. You kind of have to look for a film like this. Mm-hmm. But this movie's awesome. Yeah. I, <laughs> this movie fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that I first saw when I was a teenager because I went down this rabbit hole of wanting to find a lot of like Spirit Squad movies, which I've written mm-hmm. about that before I wrote uh, in Fangoria about Spirit Squad horror. Yeah, like within the last month or so. Yeah. And this one kept coming up because Sam spends almost the entirety of the movie dressed like a cheerleader because before she realizes it's the end of the world, she's like, well, I'm going to go to practice. So Mm -hmm. she puts her outfit on and then it's the end of the world and she just doesn't change. Um, So I was a little I was a little sad when I was like, oh, there's not more cheerleading in this. It's just like a very awesome costume choice. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's how I found it. And I was obsessed and in love with it. I love both of these characters so fucking much. Um, And just a lot of the themes in it. So before we completely dive in, let's talk about what Night of the Comet is all about. And our friend Dango has a lovely synopsis for us. After a rare comet sighting, teen sisters Regina, Catherine Mary Stewart, and Samantha, Kelly Maroney, find that they're among the only survivors of a zombie attack. The girls partner with another survivor, Hector, Robert Beltran, But as they try to avoid the zombies, they're sought by scientists who want to experiment on the bodies in the hope of finding an antidote. Dodging both the doctors and the undead, they keep moving in the hope that they can continue to stay alive. And in the same way that this is, you know, a second tier Christmas movie where it's like, oh, it's kind of Christmas. This is also kind of not really a zombie movie. It's a movie that happens to have zombies. Yeah, but they're also not like zombie zombies. Yeah. They're like... It's like space dust mutants more yeah, than anything. They're they're honestly they're closer to uh, some some villains from a horror movie that also came out this year, which is probably a really good segue for me to talk about some historical context. All right, let's go. What was going on at this time? Tell me what was cool for teens. So this is definitely uh, still the early '80s, which is a weird time for the teen genre because obviously there are no shortage of teen films in the 80s, both in the horror genre and just the general teen genre. But it's also like the the first four or five years of this decade is a little weird. Mm -hmm. So I broke it down to a few kind of categories. I have more classic teen films, which primarily boil down to either a um, maybe like a musical fun time film, like a Footloose or a Purple Rain. 
mm-hmm. or uh, sex comedies like Meatballs Part 2, Revenge of the Nerds, or 16 Candles. Ooh, yeah. Okay, so we're we're in peak teen sex. Yeah, and it's really not until 16 Candles that you have the John Hughes formula gets established. Mm-hmm. And then the teen genre becomes something else entirely for the rest of the decade. Interesting. Okay, okay. As far as the horror genre goes, it's it's a weird year. You're starting to see, like, the, the slasher franchise is getting tired, but also taking off. I think this was the year that it kind of got reinvented because this was the year that Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Oh, yeah. Yes, yep, by, yep, this, yep. by this point, Friday the 13th was on its final chapter in very large quotes. <laughs> And uh, I think that the zombies in this movie are probably closest to something like Chud. That's a pretty good call. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. I can subscribe to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is also like ugly 80s where you have mm-hmm. things like Red Dawn coming out Oof. where it's the end of the world or the Toxic Avenger where there's mutants. There's a lot of things that are very, very common trends in this specific period. Mm-hmm. But the one that I find the most interesting is you had not one, but three separate horror Christmas movies come out outside of this one. I'm trying to think what... They oh, you're going to guess them? Okay, like, don't don't tell me them. Okay. 1984. Yes. Christmas movie. Three of them. Three of them. Okay, so two one... Of them, two of them are very big. One for sure is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Correct, the first one. That is 84. Yeah. Is Gremlins 84? Gremlins is also oh, 84. Oh, shit. Okay, Gremlins is 84. Oh, God. Of... The, the last one's the hard one. Don't tell me. It's going to make me crazy. <laughs> Two hours later. What was it? Don't open until Christmas. Oh, I wouldn't have guessed that in a thousand years. Yeah, I'm like, I'm only aware of that one. But... Christmas horror films obviously existed before 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of like Christmas Evil or obviously Black Christmas. One Christmas of... Evil is a nightmare of a yeah. movie. <laughs> oh my God. So obviously you've had Christmas horror movies exist. Even something like A Christmas Carol, which is built around ghosts and death and right, stuff like that. Right, right. It's always kind of been there. But what was it about 1984 that they popped out three, two of which are very, very well known, especially Gremlins? I truly don't know i know that gremlins is also based kind of off of the desire of consumerism after et mm-hmm. um but yeah that that's a wow the fact that there are four distinctive yeah. horror christmas movies this year i have never put that all together all right because like i talk a lot about like 1985 and 86 and how that's sort of like our years of really big like vampire booms like sexy mm-hmm. vampires Never have I realized that 84 is kind of like the year of horror Christmas movies. Huh. And they're all really different horror Christmas yeah, movies. Yeah, they're all wildly different and not just It's not just matter, a slasher Santa movie like you always think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wild. All right. Well, that was yeah. fancy. That yes. was a fun thing to learn. So that's kind of where we're at in the landscape of Night at the Comet. Interesting. It's, I it's love that. It's a weird period for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> I Okay, yeah. I really, really love that. Well, cool. Let's let's dive in. Let's talk about our characters, and I, I do want to treat them separately, even though they're kind of hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Let's start off with Regina. Let's talk about Reg. How do you feel about Reg? 
She has amazing hair. She really does. And I love that even in the movie, they're like, oh, she's got fantastic hair. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope she's got strong genes as we drain her blood. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, Reg is so cool. Um, I feel like my personality is these two characters. Yeah, just kind of like smashed together. Yeah, like I'm I'm the cool version of Reg where it's like, yeah, I work in a movie theater. I'm disaffected and I play Tempest, which is one of the coolest vector arcade games ever. But also I'm like painfully aloof and don't really give a shit about a lot of things as I drift clumsily through life like Sam. (laughs) So it's like I love these two together, but... I uh I don't know. I feel like I feel like Reg is the rebellious one. Mm-hmm. She's the cool one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reg to me fits in a similar category as a character that we'll be talking about next week. Spoiler alert. Um she has big like Sue Ellen Crandall energy. Yeah. Of like a teen girl who's acts a little bit mature for her age. So sometimes I think you forget that she's a teenager because she's really responsible but then every once in a while something sneaks out and you're like oh nope yep you're like 18 years old i, I think, understand you now. yeah like you're really young and you you, you you're aware when you're aware mm-hmm. but i almost wonder if she has to be more mature because obviously like her home life is is weird and complicated mm-hmm. but i think it's just that her younger sister is so like casually aloof and that's not to say she's dumb because she certainly isn't no but she's just kind of like yeah, whatever. I'm just kind of going through my business. Mm-hmm. Whoop doopy. Yeah. I love Reg because she definitely embodies the type of girl I really strived to be. Yeah. Where Reg is definitely unafraid of her femininity. She's very stylish. Oh, yeah. Um, Both of them are. But she's very into what she's into. She loves movies. Uh, she loves video games, so those Has are... Has to have all of the high scores on Tempest. Yeah, she's real competitive, like, she's very driven, but she's also really responsible, and you're right, a lot of that might be because she has to be, because as we see, before the world ends, her family's kind of fucked up. Like, her dad's a Green Beret, and he married this, like, atrocious woman who is just trill and who terrible. Slaps the shit out of kids. Oh my god, yeah, like... That's something that I don't know if I'll ever fully be able to adjust to because grow being born in 1990 mm-hmm. means that my parents were people who definitely did get hit when they were kids oh, yeah, because that was mine. acceptable. I was also a person who got hit growing up. But the 90s was this weird time period where like some parents were still hitting their kids, but we were starting to talk about how like hey, there's lifelong lasting impacts of hitting your kids as a form of discipline. Yeah. That is not good. So maybe not do that. Yeah. So that was like a really weird world to grow up in. Right. Like you can't can't go down the street and just punch a stranger. You go to jail. But you can hit the shit out of like a small person who is forced to live with you. Yeah. Like that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's very strange. Don't tell me how to raise my child. So watching movies from the 80s where that is such a common practice and like that guarantee did not raise a single eyebrow when it went across any producer's thing of like, and then the stepmom slaps her across the face so hard she flies across the room next to the television. I don't think anyone was like, "Mm, maybe that's a bit too much. They probably have been like... Well, that's what happens when you mouth off to your stepmom. Whatever, she's a bitch. <laughs> right. So, or or yeah, that too. Like, well, this character is supposed to be an asshole, so that's normal. Yeah. Um, that is one of the the few things that I think when we have our holding two truths at the same time that I personally struggle with mm-hmm. because my brain short circuits every time I see it and I'm just like, why did we ever think this was okay? 
Here's Samantha. You and your sister share a lot of secrets. I want you to share this one with her. If it were up to me, I couldn't care less what she did. But if your father makes it back home without some Sandinista blowing his brains out, he's going to hold me responsible for any kind of trouble you two girls get into. What we have here is a chain of command. The major jumps on me, I jump on you. Did you get that? Okay. Now, are you going to join the party? Join the party for what, Doris? So I can watch Chuck from across the street stick his hands down your pants? I think that's something Daddy should know. Chuck's a nice guy. He's certainly nice to be with while Daddy's down in banana land. You were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. It's, it's the kind of thing where that's such a real part of certainly American living. Oh, yeah. And it's weird to see because you don't see it in movies anymore. Unless someone is like a blatant villain. Yeah, unless that's part of the actual story. Like, it's a mommy dearest kind of thing. Yeah, casual child abuse is just not a thing in movies, which no. like, good. Like, yeah. it shouldn't be. Yeah. But you're totally right. Like, it is a very weird American thing that was totally normalized for a very long time. And that's bananas to me. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. So, I mean, so that is likely why Reg is the way she is and why she doesn't really take shit from anybody. She's badass. Yeah, I, I love her. And then on the flip side, we do have Sam, and Sam's her stepsister. She's the one who gets slapped across the face by, you know, shitty stepmom. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam, to me, is just, like, the most peak Valley Girl teen of this yeah. time because Night of the Comets producers are also the people who produced Valley Girl. Mm-hmm. And this was supposed to be like their horror foray into that same sort of energy. Obviously did not pay off the way that they would have yeah. hoped. But Sam Valley is Girl that, made a lot more money. Sam is that character. And for those that don't know, the character of Sam is the greatest inspiration for Joss Whedon creating the Buffy the Vampire Slayer character. Mm-hmm. That's who Buffy Summers is based on, especially in the movie. Yes, like, definitely. It's blatantly obvious in, in that regard, um, even down to styling. But that's, I think, the best way to, to pitch that character to people. Like, she's Buffy. That's who mm. she is. Yeah, I think that there's a big difference between, obviously, TV Buffy and movie Buffy, and that's why that's so divisive amongst Buffy fans. That's you know, It was a big talking point that we brought up when yes. we did our Buffy episode forever ago. Mm-hmm. It was last Halloween. And I think when you think of someone who is very obviously like a hyper feminine cute fun teen girl mm-hmm. who is like chronically delightful mm-hmm. but also like kind of mean mm-hmm. sometimes like she can be really mean mm-hmm. um i i almost think that there she's not fully aware of like the consequences of the end of the world or even like her own actions sometimes mm-hmm. because she just doesn't have a full grip on that scope yet yeah so she's just like what the world ended whatever I have to wait to cross the street? Meh. Some people are, are, are shooting up some things? Heh. Like, there's a, there's this almost flippancy to it because she just doesn't choose to process any of it. She's just like, eh, whatever. Yeah. One of the scenes that I love so much is when Reg is trying to explain to Sam what happened because the two of them survived because by 
act of fate, they both slept in like lead rooms, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, that means the entire city of Cleveland would have been fine because there's so much goddamn lead paint in all the houses. Cleveland against the world, baby. That is a conversation for another day. Anyway, <laughs> she's trying to explain to Sam what happened, and Sam obviously has not processed what's going on, just assumes, you know, there was a party last night because everyone wanted to see the comet, and Where they're are the all. Kids? That's what it is, is when Reg is trying to explain, like, it's a, like a Saturday afternoon, and no one's outside playing, where are the goddamn kids? And to me, that moment is so brilliant, because what Reg is saying is not just like, look, at there's no one here, because she does show, like, look at the fucking dust left I, behind by all these yeah, people. Yeah, here's your stepmom, as, like, the dust trickles out of the dress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oh, and here's here's the guy she's been cheating on dad with. Here's his shoe, and then just, like, dumps the dust out of the shoe. Here's, here's the vaporized dog. Yeah, the vaporized dog, yeah. It's, like, such great visual. Uh, it's brilliant. But the acknowledgement and what, like, kind of gets through to Sam that, like, things are wrong is suburban american life is currently not functioning the way that it should there are no kids outside playing do you like things are amiss Mm -hmm. the world is not what it seems do you get it now yeah and that's kind of what it takes to get through to sam and i love that yeah i mean even just looking at the sky which is red because it's full of people dust yeah which i was thinking about that too of how awful the air quality would be and the fact that those particles are still there even if you can't see them like you can see the red up high but they're still there if you can lift up a shoe and dump them which means they spend this entire movie just inhaling people dust whatever it's los angeles the smog's already bad that's a good that's a drop in the bucket (laughs) (laughs) this is los angeles in the 80s yeah very good point So uh, I I think maybe you have to say, like, where are the kids, though, in order to kind of put that more in perspective of, like, okay, this is more of your world. Let's bring this down to, like, an age level, maybe, Mm -hmm. where it's like, ah, yes, because kids aren't outside playing. You can't go to cheer practice. Mm -hmm. This 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 is now something you can contextualize. Yeah, you need to put it in words that that are relatable in order for it to make sense. Yeah. So question that I have for you. Yeah. What would be the sign you need? To know that the world has ended. I mean, it, the, the fact that Reg is just cruising around on a motorcycle and the streets of Los Angeles are fucking empty. Mm-hmm. And they are never empty. I had traffic driving home from the bar that I work at last night at like 2 a.m. Yeah. I had like to stop on the highway to at one point because there is always traffic (laughs) the fact that there's no one honestly it should probably be a bunch of cars like that scene in walking dead like the first episode where it's just lines of cars with Mm -hmm. vaporized people that's what it should look like not a lone car stopped at a red light (laughs) what i do think you can kind of excuse is that the night before was the comet i know so the likelihood (laughs) that people were driving is slim like people were probably hunkered down in order to watch the comet um, so I guess you could make that. Yeah. But I, I was doing a little bit of research about the movie and like how they were able to pull this off. Yeah, especially because this movie has an extremely low budget. Yeah, they did not have the money to just shut down an entire city. No. So what they did is because they knew they were going to be, you know, modifying the way the sky looked anyway for red people dust, they would shoot obviously very early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, they would block off a small portion of a road. But in that scene you're talking about where she's, you know, driving around the motorcycle nowhere, Mm -hmm. the road that she's on is one that goes up. 
So there's there's full, like a hill, right? Yeah, it's like a like a hill. So depending on where you are perspective wise, you can cheat it to make it look like that's the only highway. When in reality, there's like highways and a freeway beneath where she is <laughs> that are totally just Los Angeles. Like Angelino's going to work, yeah. and they were able to cheat it because the cinematographer was just very very smart, and it's a lot of like film school tricks, which I that's really love. tight. I love that. Thought it was great. This movie does a lot of really really cool stuff with its budget i agree i i think it's really smart with its effects i think it's really smart with its sets and its costume designs like i i, I just really ex- appreciate the gumption of a film that makes it work and writes a script around knowing what their budget limitations are going to be something else that i find really interesting is that the writer and director of this film tom eberhart presented the idea of this world to mm-hmm. the actors and was like if it was the end of the world how would you feel about it? And they were like, I'd go on a shopping spree. I would do all these things. we get a freaking costume montage. <laughs> yes. So th- their input was incorporated into the script. I love that. And he was interviewed about the movie, and he said what was interesting is they kept talking about how it would be so so much fun to be uh-huh. able to do that until he brought up the idea of, well, what would you do about dating? And then they both got really sad. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why that aspect of it is uh, included in the movie. So, do you like him? Come on, Sam. I'm just interested. Yeah, well, I guess so. I mean, he's nice. There was this new guy at school, Paul Morgan. And transferred from Taft. Junior. Oh, I don't hang around with juniors much. I liked him. I mean, he was from Taft, but he was nice. Kathy said he was probably going to ask me out. But I love the the stuff with the mall for this movie, mm-hmm. because if I was a teen girl in the 80s and everyone disappeared except me, I would 1,000% immediately go to the mall. Like, yeah. no questions asked. Yeah. And obviously, we would see something like this in, like, Dawn of the Dead a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. But that experience is very different than, like, a teen mall experience. Very different. And I think that's something I really, really love about this movie and why it rules so much is that this movie is not only aggressively a teen film, but it's very blatant in being a teen girl film. Mm-hmm. This isn't like um you you put this in better words than me, so I'll let you kind of explain it. But like someone like Ellen Ripley, yes, explain so, that for the people. Okay, so we talk a lot about the quote unquote strong female character. Yes, and we talk about characters like Ellen Ripley from Alien and the franchise. Yeah, one of the coolest characters ever. Absolutely, one of Sigourney the Weaver is a badass. One of the coolest characters ever, and. This gets into, in all honesty, like weird Lola Bunny bunny territory, Mm -hmm. where we somehow have equated strength in female characters to be a lack of femininity. Yeah. And And it's been that way for a long time. Yes. So when you have a character like Ellen Ripley and people are like, oh my God, she's one of the best written characters ever. And then you bring up the point, well, originally this character was written as a man. They just cast a woman in it Mm -hmm. and while you could argue that's a great exercise in how like 
gender doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. But at the same time, by changing that character to a woman, it changes everything. It changes how so many people view the film. Mm -hmm. It changes the impact of the film. That character is so important to so many people. That character is only defined by being a woman in retrospect, not necessarily as a forethought. Correct. Yeah. And then you get a movie like this where the two people that are sort of in charge of the future of humanity, for the most part, are two teen girls. Yeah. Like the fate of humanity is in the hands of two teenage girls because do not get it twisted. Yes, Hector is here. Yeah. But as any post-apocalyptic film will tell you, women are the most important thing when mm. it comes to this. Because as fucking Christopher Eggleston says in 20 Days Later, women mean a future. Yep. And obviously, this is broad brushstroke. Women are not to be defined by whether or not they they're can... breedable. Yes, whether or not they're breedable. That's not what I'm saying. So I, I, I hate that I even have to clarify it. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is so many people love to just like willfully misinterpret the things that are being said. Yeah. So I have to say it for my own sanity. Don't trust the internet. Never. God, no. But this is an instance where, yeah, Hector's here, but if Reg is like, hey, bro, fuck you, you're never having sex with me, then, yeah, the future's in Reg's hands. Like, Hector, it's not up to him. Mm -hmm. And I like that this movie allows them that power and that autonomy. So the end of the world is going to be whatever they want it to be. Yeah, it's really awesome, especially because... In addition to, obviously, like, the idea of Ellen Ripley and how she's written, we've talked uh, a little bit in past episodes about how, in general, we talk about how the idea of a final girl in a horror film is more about emotional manipulation than it is actually giving you strong female characters. Mm -hmm. Because viewers are more likely to be fearful and empathetic towards a woman than if it's a male final character. Right. We would see uh, a stark contrast between, like, Nightmare 1 this year, and then Nightmare 2, mm -hmm. and how people treated the final character in that one. Correct. And that means that a lot of the way that those films are written aren't really being mindful of the characters, but knowing that this film takes the autonomy of its actors and their roles in this film seriously mm -hmm. is really awesome. Like, it, it affects what this film is. This film feels radically different than any other movie that's like that. And especially a film about the apocalypse or, yeah. you know, like a post-apocalyptic world, a lot of those movies tend to be very male-driven. Oh, it's extremely macho because it's about survival. Hunter and gatherer, I'm the provider. Ugh. Right. And there are very few examples where you see, one, women at the forefront and women who are not and this is no slide against any of the, the women who have been in post-apocalyptic films, but a woman who isn't like Furiosa. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like they're just teen girls and they happened to be the ones who survived, which if we're going to be real, if it was the end of the world, that's likely how our survival groups would be. Like the likelihood that it's actually people who are prepared for the end of the world to have survived is very slim. It's mm -hmm. probably going to be random. And yeah. the fact that this movie is like, yep, the survivors are like teen girls and this trucker and some other random ass people that came out of nowhere and a couple scientists and a handful it's of kids. It's a grab kids. bag. Yeah. yeah, it's a grab bag because that's how it really would be. One of my favorite movies that deals with kind of the end of the world is Jeremy Gardner's The Battery, which is a zombie mm -hmm. film from a couple years back that was made for like no money. 
but the two people that it follows are two guys that happen to play on the same baseball team. They're not like super close friends. They're not buds. They're just two dudes. They're just two dudes who happen to be on the same team together, and now they're kind of stuck with each other. And I love that that's the relationship that they have. And in this one, though, we're getting two people that happen to know each other that do like each other, but it's also they're not together and it's like this big romance thing because they're sisters. Yeah. So they're just working together because one, they have to, and two, they genuinely care about each other. Yeah. And I love that. There's there's a lot of elements in play in this film that it makes it so glaringly obvious how different it is from so many other of its contemporaries. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one reason that this movie is so awesome, especially because we do talk regularly about how you are not allowed to have strong women be feminine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it goes into the Lola Bunny conversation, yeah. which was the, the justification they had when people were like freaking out about her new about character her tits design. and her, her ass and right. whatever. Where they're like, well, she's been sexy for too long. Now we want her to be strong. And it's like, she was never not strong. She was always the best player on the goddamn team. Like she, she was fucking cool. She was doing this like, don't call me doll thing a la barbed wire. <laughs> don't yes. call me babe. It was awesome. Yeah. So, but but that just goes to show that even today, you know, 30 odd years later, we're still having difficulty accepting the fact that you can be strong-willed and somebody who can survive the end of the world and also be a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Like, that should not be so out of the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. But we as a culture continue to perpetuate these really backwards-ass ideas about femininity. Yeah, and... I think it's really cool how the fact that they survived isn't really, um, it's it's not really a, like a big deal. There's not this moment ever where anybody's like, how did you didn't deserve to survive? What the, you, uh. it's just kind of like, yeah, we kind of just lucked into it like everyone else did. Mm-hmm. Next thing we're moving on to, because that's what a film about survival is about. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to dwell on the idea of like, why did you survive? And or more practical people didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also a really important thing and obviously not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. But frequently when I used to actually speak at pancreatic cancer rallies, Mm -hmm. which I do not do anymore and I do not do it anymore for specifically this reason, I would frequently have family members of people who had lost someone. And I understand that this is not a reflection of me. This is absolutely their own issue. But I would frequently have people come up to me and comment on my my weight or mm-hmm. my my appearance or what I do for a living or any of those things as a way to justify why they didn't think it was fair that I survived and their loved one did not. Mm-hmm. And people would say this to my face, yeah. which is one of the most horrendous things you can say to anyone, mm-hmm. but it, it's so cruel and so painful So the fact that this movie is like, yeah, we're not going to go there. Like, we should all just be very thankful that we made it and we're going to figure out how to get through this together, Mm -hmm. I think is great. Yeah, there is a sort of darkness that looms over this film, but ultimately it's very fun. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, another really good example is you have Mary Warnov in this movie Mm -hmm. who, you know, anybody who's been listening for a little bit, she's also the evil principal in Rock and Roll High School amongst many other cool things. She's a wonderful character actor. Yes, she's awesome. And uh, she goes against the scientists that she's working with to save Sam. 
This this mm-hmm. is a film about women helping women for the most part mm-hmm. and surviving like this male world and it's fucking cool. Yeah, agreed completely. Yeah. I I love that this movie is willing to do that because so many movies are not and it just goes to show especially in the apocalypse when women are treated like currency. Like we mm-hmm. even have the scientists that are like, "Oh, we're going to use these survivors to make a serum like a like an antidote or whatever it's like mm. you are not valuing the lives of these people who are still alive yeah. you're just using them as material well that's like the idea of we're scientists the future's in our hand maybe we can fix this these are just some girls who cares right like that's the closest you get to being like well i'm more important i deserve to survive and you don't and that's why they're villains yes oh of course and I think that that's one thing that's really interesting about this film, especially because usually with 80s films that have a lower budget, like, you know, sub million dollars, Mm -hmm. they tiptoe a lot more into like exploitive areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you have the classic double dream sequence. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. (laughs) I would love to know what the first example of a double dream sequence was. And did it blow people's minds kind of like a fucking cat people with the first ever jump scare where I was like, (gasps) and it's just a buzz. Like, I would love to know when the first one was, but I first double dream. Yeah. Just I've never looked it up. And I don't know how you would even fact check that. But that's the closest thing you get to any kind of like sexual exploitive things in this film. Mm -hmm. You even have... um, Essentially, the goths that work at the mall in, like, the stock room, which is so funny because mm-hmm. that's so true even up into the 2000s where, like, yeah, they're the gross, like, the, it almost looks like Bauhaus works at the mall or something. Yes. And they're like, yeah, you're too gross to be seen in the day at the mall, but we'll let you work after hours. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. So it's, even that scene could have been, like, a lot more exploitive or sexual or kind of rapey. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really go that far. Mm-hmm. This is still a fun film. Yeah, I mean, there's a cover of girls just want to have fun in this movie. Like, yeah. until there's a day where it is just completely juxtaposed against something horrifying, girls just want to have fun is always going to signal to me that this is fun. Like, even in Knives and Skin, when this is covered and it's supposed to be like kind of a really fucked up sort of it's more of an awkward laughter yeah that's it's an awkward laughter like i'm not terrified by it it doesn't hurt me it's like but it's still fun i I feel very similarly to how um the strangers pray at night has bonnie tyler during a massive kill scene and it's supposed to be this awful terrifying thing but i'm like no this is still fun though because this song is fun yeah and that's how this movie feels to me like yeah even when things are really dark and kind of scary or very galaxy brained in its, you know, analysis of what happens in the end of the world. And that can be really bleak to think about for too long. Mm-hmm. It still feels fun. Like, I feel like I'm able to explore those themes in a safe environment. And that yeah. doesn't happen very often. No, certainly not during this period. Yes. Yeah, like the end of the world movies between from like threads to now are all just like, I am having an existential crisis now. And let's go watch I... the road. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. They're all beautiful, wonderful films, but like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. No, th- there's a big difference between something like, I don't know, the, um, the militant restriction over women's bodies that exists in something like 28 Days Later and like Anna and the Apocalypse. Right. I want to live in the Anna and the Apocalypse or Zombieland world mm-hmm. where like you can have fun while trying to survive because I think that is more true to life. Yeah. Like one of my biggest complaints with a show like The Walking Dead is that it's so goddamn serious all the time. Mm-hmm. 
because I think people would go crazy. Like you have to have your fun. You have to have those moments like in 28 Days Later where you're running through the grocery store having a good old time. Yeah. Like you need those moments of levity because living in a world where everything is just like everything is dangerous and everything is terrible and we got to keep our heads on and we got to do this and we got to be strong and we got like that very macho way of approaching survival is exhausting. I mean, one of the biggest examples of like King Macho that exists in films right now made his career off of a zombie film that used Richard Cheese in a montage. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that Mr. Zack Snyder is a macho dude. He writes very macho films and has a lot of uh, really toxic fans mm -hmm. that probably are a little closer to our Bauhaus stock boys than good old Hector in this film. Uh -huh. So, But they fancy themselves Hector. Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm a nice guy. No, no. <laughs> no, no, you're not. Do, do other people say you are? <laughs> right. So it's so weird to like have this weird juxtaposition of how we have survival and how it's different. And I, I'm not going to say one way is better than the others. I just like that we can have a variety in the apocalypse. Agreed completely. Yeah. I tend to revisit the more fun ones for obvious reasons. Agreed. And part of why this movie is fun is because it's a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. So wonderful friend, Meg Navarro, brilliant writer, one of the, mm -hmm. the head critic at Bloody Disgusting, wrote an article about this movie called 1984's Night of the Comet is a holiday treat that is perfect for Christmas time watching. Mm -hmm. This is uh, a couple years old. But the way she describes it, the presence of Christmas perpetually looms over Regina and Sam's journey as they take shelter in a radio station, meet fellow survivor Hector, and embark on a girls-only shopping spree set to Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun, the latter of which involves the sisters dancing in front of a large department store Christmas tree. A major turning point of the movie sees Hector returning from a trip to find his family and discovers Regina has been taken by mysterious scientists. He's dressed fully in a Santa Claus suit and bearing gifts for the girls. Mm. The third act, while set in an underground research facility, takes place on Christmas Day. The unconventional take on the major holiday is appropriate of a wholly unconventional post-apocalyptic horror film. Tom Eberhardt eschewed the bleakness that usually saturates the subgenre in favor of upbeat lightheartedness, which also feels seasonally appropriate. The zombies in this movie retain their humanity and have the ability to talk, at least for a while. Regina and Sam are tough girls when faced with opposition, and their valley girl persona hides unexpected intelligence. It means their adversaries continually underestimate them. Yeah. And I love that because that's exactly what's happening. Like having this Christmas thing going on does inherently bring out this weird sense of joy and fun. Even if you don't celebrate Christmas or like you're you're not into it. Like I celebrate Christmas the commercial holiday, not Christmas the religious holiday. Oh God, no. Because those are two very different things. Yeah. And I feel like Regina and Sam are the same way. Like, they're not going to sit down and break bread and pray for no. Christmas, but they will my, dance in front of a Christmas tree. My family sang happy birthday to Jesus at Christmas time. You've told me that, and it is horrifying. I hate it. I, I would never do it. I would stand there awkwardly. But actually, something that I think is really, really interesting, and um, this is kind of a twofold thing, so it's part one, part two, is that it's so interesting that it's a Christmas movie, and the whole point is that 
you usually come together with the people you love and then you all get fucking vaporized, which in this case was at comet parties rather than Christmas parties. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing that I would think is the most interesting is maybe the people who would be hiding in a bunker would be someone like queer people who don't have family to go to. Mm -hmm. And that makes this feel like a very distinctly queer Christmas movie, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that none of the characters are. I'm so glad that you said that because I feel the exact same way. Yeah. Because this is a movie ultimately about a chosen family. Yeah, it's very desolate. And it is a chosen family on Christmas, Mm -hmm. which that is kind of like peak queerness. I mean, you can speak on it probably better than I can. Yeah. But we used to have like what they call, it, it's not a great term for it, but like an orphan's Christmas. Yeah. At the bar where Well, that's what they call it. Work. Yeah, that's what they also call it in uh, Black Christmas 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you would, you know, we used to have it at the bar where it was like a gift exchange and it was for people who may not have anywhere to go mm-hmm. on Christmas. Or you need a drink because your family sucks and you can mm-hmm. stop by on your way home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I loved, like they were never busy. But yeah. I, we always had fun on Christmas on Christmas shifts at the bar. And almost exclusively, a lot of the people that came by are people who have, like, really fucked up relationships with their families or they're queer people who do not have families anymore. Yeah. And that is such, like, a, an inherent feeling in this movie. And that's probably also a reason that I really resonate with it. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that I don't, like, I do ha- have a family that still loves me and cares yeah. about me. despite. Everything, which is which is great. Yeah, but they, you know, they also they don't live near me, and I haven't lived near my family in a very long time for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I usually did not see them. I don't think I've spent Christmas with my family in probably like five years at this point, and mm-hmm. before then, it was you know years before that too. Well, yeah, if we went and visited them, it would look a lot like this because they live in Florida. There's gonna mm-hmm. be no snow for Christmas. Well, I grew up <laughs> going to Florida for Christmas because that's where my extended yeah. family lives. So I never had snow on Christmas. I didn't have snow on Christmas again until I moved to Ohio. Mm -hmm. And that was very weird. I was like, I should be used to this, but I'm not. This is is Christmas, baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I I think it was a post-secret. Remember post-secret? I think post-secret's still around, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Good for it. Um, I think it was a post-secret that I read one time, like, I don't know, 15 years ago? Who knows how long this was? Maybe it was around the time of that All-American Rejects video. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it was a post-secret that said something like, I want to get married just so I have an excuse to go somewhere else for Christmas. And that is a feeling that I go, yep, that's a whole mood. That's a Mm -hmm. big-ass mood. Um, But the part two of that I kind of wanted to talk about at the Christmas themes of this film is there's casual homophobia towards Hector. Well, of course, because it's the 80s. Yeah. And you know what? Sam's like 16, probably. That's how people talk when they're teens. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been thinking. Don't set any dangerous precedent. What if Hector's got the same problem we have? Such as? Such as? No guys. What? Really? I mean, what if Hector's gay? <laughs> I'm sure. Think it over. You said he didn't come on to you last night. So? So that means that the last guy on Earth is either a gentleman or a fag. I mean, what are the odds? In L.A.? Things could be very interesting around here, Regina. And the defense I made of Hector was like, okay, I'm not going to say Hector's a little, mm, 
but also he changes costumes many times. Yes, he he's does. He's a Santa. <laughs> he's he's like a little a little redneck who drives like a fancy convertible with a cowboy hat. Hector's a little dramatic. He might be a little, huh? <laughs> we don't we and the thing is too, when we get towards the end and they've rescued the kids and they're doing their whole like little fake family thing they've got going on. Oh yeah, they, they look like they're going to church. Yes. Like Reg and Hector are taking on these responsibilities as parental figures for these kids, but it feels very queer to me. Like it feels yeah. like queer people raising kids together and like a village, it takes a village kind of thing. Like it doesn't feel to me like Reg and Hector are off to be romantic because they're in love with each other. No. Like that's never. They don't feel like a couple. No, they never They, they like way. each other. Like they certainly bond, but I think everyone bonds because this is your group, not like they're in love. There's no real love plot to this movie. No, they, they're they there together because like they, they enjoy each other's company and they know this is what they've got to do. So they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's not out of this like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. It's the end of the world. And the one for me just happened to also survive. Like that's not yeah. what it is. Yeah. And I love that. And I also love that Sam, obviously her priority is that she's sad because she does want to be with somebody. There's she no wants to date. boys left in the world. And there's no boys, but she does get a boy at the end. And the, the, the high score on the game guy. Actually, he wasn't even high score. He got like sixth. Right. But, you know, it's somebody who, you know, knocked Reg off the board. Yeah. And I love that that is the person who Sam is like, yeah, I'm getting the fuck out of this, like, nuclear family thing. That's not my style. Mm -hmm. Specifically that it's him. Because that is the only person who has ever, like, one-upped Reg before. Mm -hmm. So that makes him a worthy suitor for Sam. Yeah. Because, like, in the world of video games, in the world of, you know, whatever... Like, that's the guy who one-upped Reg, so, like, respect. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to be with, you know, you get to be the, the new person who can help Sam on, on her journey. You've got, proven... Got to take care of her. Yeah, you've proven yourself worthy by getting this high score on Tempest. <laughs> yep. No, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, and honestly, he's barely on screen, but I think that that's, that's a cool way to end this movie. And especially mm-hmm. fun because it's like, what do you mean? Why are you waiting to cross the road? There's no one here. And then the only car in like 400 in existence. miles just comes out of here. It's so funny. And he's like, you like my car? I have 12. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love that too because that also feels very much like an end of the world thing. Because I don't think he's saying that to be like, yeah, I'm a rich guy. I think he's, he's just like, like, I'm collecting I'm cars at the end of the world. Who cares? The world. <laughs> yeah. Like I would absolutely do that shit. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my God. What a great... What like what a great like line to have. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of a um of a, of a Tom Waits song called "A Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis." Okay, Christmas baby, uh, this is my tie-in here. Where uh, it's it's a it's a big lie. It's a story song about reading a letter from someone who is in prison, and. She says, I want to buy a used car lot and then not sell any of them. Just drive a different car every day, depending on how I feel. Oh, yeah. That's a mood. Yeah. That, right? that's a, that is a goal to strive for. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so something else that I wanted to talk about is kind of the, the, there's a very weird relevancy to this movie based on the past year. Oh, yeah, definitely. And there was an article on Curbed, like LA's branch of Curbed called Night of the Comet is a feel-good dystopian movie set in L.A. Mm-hmm. And it is written by a writer named Chris Eggerston, and they watched this movie during the pandemic. And obviously, we were not living here at the start of the pandemic, but from what we've been told by our friends who were here, 
like traffic was kind of non-existent and mm-hmm. you could get from like here to Malibu in like 15 minutes, yeah. which is unheard of. And the way they talk about this movie is pointing out how in a weird kind of way this movie kind of predicted how LA really would look if the world ended. Yeah. <laughs> so it says... In Comet, the urban desolation springs from an entirely different type of cataclysm. The cosmic snowball, which upon entering our atmosphere, instantaneously vaporizes nearly every human on Earth and renders almost all the rest into mutants and zombies. The few humans who regain untouched include Reggie and Sam, two otherwise ordinary L.A. teenagers who know their way around a firearm thanks to their father on active duty with the Green Berets. Mm-hmm. I love the acknowledgement that Sam and and Reg know how to use heavy machinery because their dad's in the military. I love it. Hey, give me a reason for it. Sure. Exactly. Because as much as I love scenes in post-apocalyptic movies where we have people learning how to use guns, mm-hmm. I also love that they're like, yeah, we're not wasting our time. We're just going to kind of do this. And yeah, they've got to do some practice. They're a little rusty. Like that's something that needs to happen. But it's not this like, totally foreign concept for them. They're like, nah, we know how guns work. Well, I love it so much because they shoot the shit out of like that Ferrari or whatever. Which had to have felt so good. Oh, right. But the whole time they're doing that, and it's obviously like the most iconic shot from the movie is the two of them standing there. And Sam is just frustrated because this gun sucks in comparison to the other ones she's using because I think it keeps getting jammed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, that is such like a, yeah, no, I've held many guns and I'm irritated by this one. (laughs) But continuing into this article, they say, like, from Earthquake to Independence Day, Night of the Comet is far from the first or last movie to set the apocalypse in L.A., but only a select few have shown what the neighborhoods would actually look like. Um, They talk about then also, like, the Omega Man and Target Earth and, you Mm -hmm. know, other stuff. Since both of those films are worth a watch, if only for their vivid depictions of Los Angeles drained of human activity, but they are also dour and self-serious. By contrast, Night of the Comet is a tonally unique hybrid of comedy, horror, and science fiction. It's like a John Hughes flick shot through the lens of a Roger Corman exploitation cheapie. <laughs> yeah. That, I think, that is sounds right. the best possible way to describe this movie is John Hughes meets Roger Corman. Which is precisely what I would want out of a low-budget film. Yeah. like yeah. It, it Because it is really fun, but the the really big difference that this writer highlighted is that it felt good to watch this movie in in the early stages of the pandemic mm-hmm. because of that joy. Yeah. One of the things that people started doing when the pandemic first started happening is a lot of people <laughs> sought out pandemic movies. Yeah. Watched a lot of like contagion style. Yeah, thrillers. like outbreak. Like and yeah. then everyone got really bummed. I was like, yeah, why would you do that to yourself, you idiot? That's very much the same mindset I think like when David Bowie died and I was like I'm gonna watch The Hunger because I know everyone else is gonna watch Labyrinth I like The Hunger better and then I watched spoiler alert for The Hunger it's from 1983 so I don't feel bad spoiling it but I watch him die for 20 minutes and just, just slowly, slowly and, awfully. and terribly and he looked and better when he actually died than he did yes. in this movie <laughs> yes but like for whatever reason like that started happening I was like wait why did I do this to myself this is not the correct course of action this sucks I, I watched Zoolander that day. 
Did you really? It was circumstantial. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I um, I actually had to work that day and I put on David Bowie for like the solid eight hours I was at work. And then mm-hmm. I had a date <laughs> and oh we ended God. up we ended up going to a toast, which is across the street from the Capitol in, yeah, our, yeah. in our old neighborhood. And they played Bowie there nonstop. And we both just kind of was like, I'm sad. I'm just going to drink more and we're going to have a date, I guess. <laughs> and then I went home and I just, it was on the front page of like Netflix or something. So I watched Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, but I do think about the early stages of the pandemic. And obviously there was abject terror that was real. And especially for someone like myself, who's me- heavily immunocompromised, I was not okay for a long period of time. Uh-huh. But then there are those moments of levity where like, you can go outside and like I, I twirled fire in our in our in our parking lot and yeah. there were things that you could do like I know we had our friends talking in LA about how they would go to beaches that they've never visited before mm-hmm. just because it was far away and they could go somewhere far or go look at parts of nature they had never seen before because it didn't take two hours to get there for once yeah or um, the millions of viral videos of like people having sing-along songs in their apartments across from each other and stuff. Yeah, like there was a lot of really kind of beautiful stuff that happened. It almost felt like a slumber party. We were all just like in a three-week slumber party, and then we went, oh, wait, no, this is going to be way longer than three weeks. This isn't fun anymore. Yeah, (laughs) it stopped But it it started out cute and fun for a sec there. Right, 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 right. And I think that it's it's really important for us to keep in mind, I think especially now because we are all hyper aware of how bad things are at any given moment. Yeah, doom scrolling. Yeah, like we call – like there's a name for it for a reason. And it's very easy to get caught up in how horrible everything around us is. But a movie like Night of the Comet is like, yeah, it can be the end of the world. That doesn't mean that you can't – dance in front of a Christmas tree in an abandoned mall. Yeah. You can find all ways. sick 80s fashion. Yeah. So good. Like, I think the, the underlying message of Night of the Comet is to find the joy where you can, even in the absolute worst situations, because yeah. that is the true key to survival. Yeah. I think if you want to encapsulate the feeling of this movie outside of, like, the girls just want to have fun montage, it's when Hector goes home. Yeah. And he gets bum rut. Like, it's Christmas and no one's there. And there's a record that's just been looping for God knows how many days now. Mm-hmm. And some kid comes knocking at his door and he's clearly infected. And Hector's like slinging one liners at this kid as he's awkwardly like running around tripping over a guitar and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that is what this movie feels like. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that. This, this shouldn't be the funniest moment from me, but like, you know, we, we were allowed to like screw around watching this movie and we're allowed to have fun watching this movie. And the very first time you showed it to me, we're seeing all the scientists and I see this one dude and I go, I know this actor from something. <laughs> I know where this is going. I don't know who I know this actor from. Where do I know him from? So I'm looking him up. I'm looking through his filmography and IMDB will sort it by like who they're known for the most. Yeah. Like what's their most popular or most looked at prior like yeah. property. So I'm like, oh God, who's who's this guy, Jeffrey Lewis? So I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling for a while. And then I'm like, oh my God, he's the shitting principal from the new guy. <laughs> Which I love so much that only you would realize that. It's because Jeffrey Lewis has these um 
like these droopy dog kind of jowls to his face. Mm -hmm. But like the most kind and beautiful blue eyes that he like then passed on to his daughter, Juliet. Yes, which I did not realize that was Juliet Lewis's dad until recently. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny to me. But like... If this movie was serious, if we were watching something that was a lot more like took itself a lot more seriously, then that moment would be weird, mm-hmm. and that would like it would have been funny, but it wouldn't have felt right to be sh- like just ma- shitting around and and making these jokes while we're watching it. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what this movie's about. Yeah, we're having fun. We're all having fun together, unless you're an evil scientist or an evil stock boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then they can die. Fuck them. Yeah. They can get blown up because Hector knows how to rig bombs to people's ignition because I guess he worked for the mob at some point. (laughs) Hey, you know what? We all have to make a living somehow. Yeah. We do what we can. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of like a feel good kind of feeling of of this movie, um, Kelly Maroney actually uh, recently was popping up on on Twitter and she kind of of had a little story. Yeah. Okay. And it was sad and then it was less sad. It was yeah. It was sad, and then it was less sad, and it's currently, I think, still unfolding as as time goes on. Yeah. But recently, on one of those like uh, like auction sites or movie prop sites, uh-huh. her cheerleading outfit went on sale, and Kelly obviously was trying to bid on it because that's a huge part of her life. It's a huge part of her career. Yeah. She was also really excited recently because there is new alternative art for a new release of Chopping Mall. And for the first time ever, her character is <laughs> in the artwork. She's like, ah, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm they, here. Because they always feature Barbara Crampton. Yes. <laughs> um, but it was really, it was really sweet. She bid on it and she did not win. And she was obviously heartbroken about it and Mm -hmm. you know posted about it and a bunch of fans have kind of got together to like contact whoever won and be like hey i'm a movie collector and i own x y and z prop what can i give you to where you would not want this piece of memorabilia and that kelly maroney can have it back Mm -hmm. so right now a group of horror fans and a group of movie collectors are currently trying to uh negotiate with the person who won this auction Mm -hmm. so that Kelly Maroney can be reunited with her Sam costume. Which I love so much. It is just the sweetest thing, and I really hope that it does end up with its rightful home. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, I'm, I'm a collector of sorts. I own a lot of movie memorabilia, but it's all stuff that's like, like, you know, we, we have, now we have because of a very lovely uh, listener who mm-hmm. who sent us a care package. So we now have three pairs of screen worn Josie and the Pussycats headphones. Yes, and I love that and, so and, and so very so much. much other so Josie much stuff. other just wonderful props from the movie. But they're all props that were like th- there were a lot of them. Like it's like CDs from the store. Yeah, it was, and, like, it was a film about merchandising. So there's a lot of those little things. Right. I don't know if I personally could own a piece of memorabilia that is like really impactful or meaningful to the people who performed in it. I would like want to reunite it. it mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like I'm like grave robbing almost from, <laughs> from people who are alive. Like, no, this is, is rightfully belongs to you. And I feel like I'm cursed if I have it. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that we really officially have for that is uh, we have Duke's jacket from Bit. Yes. But that that was gifted to us 
by our friend, the director, Mr. Brad Michael Elmore, as a Welcome to L.A. gift. And then I put it in a shadow box and just proudly displayed on our wall. Yeah, it's in a shadow box, like how dads put jerseys in a shadow box. Yeah, I bought a very (laughs) nice shadow box for it because it's amazing and perfect and the best thing I own. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, I own a lot of random fucking cool things, none of which are movie related. But... I, I don't feel bad about that one because it, it was a gift from Brad and it was directly from the director. It wasn't like mm-hmm. some passed through auction Right. Thing. It wasn't something that was a loss that the people who involved in the movie were probably trying to track down that then got sold to somebody who has an insane amount of money for no good reason. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of the costumes, you, you and I actually were debating about this a little bit because we have a very long, an extensively long list of Halloween costumes that we want to do together. Yes, we do. And we don't, we're, 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 we kind of have it figured out, but we kind of don't know who's going to be who when we mm-hmm. dress as the two sisters from this movie. Yeah, we were going back and forth about it and we were like, you know, it should probably be that you are Reg and that I am Sam because I actually was a cheerleader and like that mm-hmm. makes sense. But in terms of how either of us would handle the apocalypse, I am Reg and you are Sam. Yeah, it's because I'm I'm just like a, a big doofy Labrador. Yes. Just kind of stumbling my way through <laughs> life. And uh, I, that, that's my energy and I love that. And I don't know. I feel like... Uh, I feel like Reg is the is the more tough one, and I think that fits you better. Yeah, I'm I'm tough, but I'm more uh, aloof about my toughness. But Reg is also tough and very maternal, and that's, that's who I she's am. She's the older sister because she's the older sister, yes. and that's very much my energy as yes. well. So that's likely how it'll be. Mm-hmm. And then I know people will be like, "But Reg is taller, so Harmony should be b- 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 barely, barely, barely." And plus, it'll be an excuse for you to get to wear a cheerleader skirt, which you've never gotten to do before, and that'll be fun and exciting. You know, that would be cool. I'm gonna make that sweater so cool out of like felt and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's like what she works. It's, it her team is the Rebels or the something. The Rebels, and uh, I. Love Love so that it's, tight. I love that it's pink and blue. Uh, like a school that is pink and blue. I want to go to that school. A, and their name is the Rebels. It's fucking mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you waiting for? We're waiting for the light to change. We do not cross against the light. Are you nuts, Auntie Regina? You may as well face the facts, Samantha. The whole burden of civilization has fallen upon us. What's that supposed to mean? It means we do not cross against the light. That's totally stupid! There's nobody here! See? We're talking ghost town! All right, Harmony. We have gotten to the time. Oh, yeah? Night of the Comet is asking you to the prom. Mm -hmm. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? It's a big... Big, big, big yes. Well, I would hope so, because otherwise it's the end of the world and we're going to die. Well, it also would be very unfortunate if we were doing a Halloween costume for a movie I was going to say no to. (laughs) I don't know. I just, I love, like, everything about this movie. I think it's so fun. I think it's so direct in how feminine it is. I love how it looks with all of, like, the radio station lighting and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I love that it has a really cool soundtrack, but it's not a distracting one. Mm-hmm. Like, these songs sound just generic enough that these, are, these aren't these are the top 40 hits. These are, like, the, the, the maybe the top 60 that mm-hmm. you forget about. 
like it's it's just kind of that very specific mood mm-hmm. that is is it's not like um weirdly enough like how the valley girl soundtrack is a million songs that everyone knows most notably i melt with you yeah and they're like so definitive of this decade it's like yeah this is all like the sneaky bubbling these are all the stuff. b-sides yeah <laughs> and i think that works for a film that is uh I wouldn't say obscure, but definitely not in like the popular lexicon the way that Valley Girl is. Agreed. Yeah, I Agreed think it completely. fits the film really well. Well, awesome. I'm so glad that this is this is a yes for you because it rules. Mm-hmm. I do know that there have been rumblings of, of a remake. I know that uh, writer, director, producer Roxanne Benjamin was slated to write the remake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the world kind of ended for a little bit so who who knows where things are on that but i i think that this is a movie that i'm okay with them remaking like i'm not gonna be like oh but it was perfect i think that there's fun ways that we can continue telling these stories Mm -hmm. and i think that it's a a universe that lends itself to more fun and yeah i'm totally down with it and if it means that more people then also find the original I'm down with that too. Yeah, I uh, I want to see good things out of it. I'm obviously cautious of every remake or sequel. Well, yeah, obviously. So I would save my judgments for like, is it bad? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah. And it uh, doesn't even matter if it's good or bad because I'm not going to be one of these people who's like, it ruined the original because well, that's, you, that's stupid incorrect. and it didn't. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I welcome that. Awesome. Well, friends, that takes us out on Night of the Comet. If you liked this episode and you would like to hear more or support us, we have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. As always, we very much appreciate anytime we get that five-star review over an Apple podcast. It genuinely does help the show. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at this ends at prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where can people find you? I am also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their track title as our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool indie band you want people to check out for this week? Yes. New band just dropped, yo. They're called Nightlife, all one word. And they have a song called New Low. Mm-hmm. And it is so good. It, I have been playing it pretty consistently for like the last week and a half since it came out. Mm-hmm. It is a dance song that also has some heavy guitar. It's kind of new wave, a little disco. It's really, really fun and also chill, but also rocks. Like there's a lot going on and I'm really excited to see more from this band. I love that. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well awesome. Alrighty, friends. That takes us out. You're the best. We love you. And as always, Save that last dance for us. Bye. Merry Christmas. Pregnant. Nope. Thought I was once, though.
not important? <laughs> That's what you think. That's the longest three weeks of my life. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.